Can you hear me okay? Yes? Hear me? Good. Very good. Wonderful. Hey, uh, welcome to Grace. If you have your Bibles, turn uh, to the book of Hebrews. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. If you don't have your own Bible, there should be kind of uh, scattered in the feedbacks in front of you several uh, pew Bibles. Feel free to grab one of those. And uh, turn with me to the book of Hebrews. It's in the New Testament towards the end of your New Testament. And turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 13, excuse me, starting in verse 8, is where we are going to be this morning as we start a new series uh, entitled Heaven. Uh, Just to kind of give you a preview as you're working your way to uh, Hebrews chapter 11, uh, we'll be in uh, in this series, uh, I don't know, six or seven weeks or so. We are going to do an introductory sermon this morning on heaven. We're going to do a a biblical theology for after-death, near-death experiences. What are we to do with that? In the coming weeks, we're going to talk about what happens to us after we die. We're going to talk about the coming millennial kingdom and Christ's reign. We're going to talk about the new heavens and the new earth, our eternal home, our eternal heaven. And then we're going to just uh, talk about some questions, questions that you may have, hot questions about heaven. We'll spend a whole Sunday trying our best to biblically answer your questions about heaven. And then uh, we'll wrap up the series talking about the implications of heaven, living in light of heaven here and now. So that's where we're going to be. I hope that you're in Hebrews 11 or close to it. Let's pray. And then we'll dive right into this sermon, Homesick for Heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of opening your word. It's indeed your holy and trustworthy, inspired, and inerrant word. It's your revelation to us. And we thank you that you have spoken to us about how we are to live here and now. But particularly, we turn our thoughts and our attention to what you have revealed about our eternal home. For those of us who place our faith in Jesus, have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, have this assurance that you are preparing a place for us, and it is a wonderful place beyond all imagination. Beyond what we, what, what we could even think of, you are preparing that place for us. And we pray that we would be homesick for it. We pray that we would long for it. We pray that we would live our life here and now in light of it and that it would impact and affect our lives as we live in light of heaven. And Father, I pray that we would realize that we're merely aliens and exiles in this world, in this country, on this earth, and that our real home is in heaven. And so we pray this in the name of Jesus. We pray it through the Spirit to God the Father and all of God's people said, Amen. I want to ask you a quick question to start off this morning. Have you ever experienced, maybe as a child or maybe even as an adult, uh, experienced an extreme time of homesickness? Have you ever been extremely homesick? Maybe it was when you were a child going away to a camp. Maybe it was when you were a child and you moved away from your home to a new town and you were homesick. Maybe it was when you were older and you uh, went away, uh, maybe on business or maybe uh, for pleasure, maybe even on uh, for war or military duty. Have you ever experienced, you know that experience, that feeling of being homesick, that you really miss your home, where you are supposed to be? I want to share with you just a brief experience. The what stands out to me as I've thought through my own life and uh, the feeling of homesickness, the most homesick that I've ever felt was I was probably 12 years old and it was my first 
Christian youth camp experience. Uh, we were in the Methodist church back then, and so my mom and dad sent me off with one of my good friends to Methodist church camp. It was uh, a couple hours away in the little town of New Braunfels, Texas. And uh, I was all excited. It was going to be my first time away. You know, I was growing up, going to be on my own. And uh, my expectations were shattered by a rather extreme case of an ear infection. So the first day, uh, I swam pretty much all day long. They allowed us to do that, and I swam, and I swam, and I swam. And I guess I got water in my ear. Who cares, right? You're having fun. I kept swimming, and the next day, I didn't feel so well. My ear was aching a little bit, but I, I I didn't think much of it. As the day progressed, I felt increasingly worse. My stomach began to feel nauseous. My head began to spin, and my ear uh, increased in pain. And I thought, something's wrong with me. I need to tell someone. So I told my camp counselor I wasn't feeling well, and uh, so they just told me to go to bed, and I slept all afternoon. To make a long story short, that evening I woke up uh, to the unpleasant sight of blood on my pillow, and I thought, oh, this is not good. My ear really hurts. And there's blood on my pillow. So I told my camp counselor, he freaked out and said, we need to get you to the doctor ASAP. So the next morning we went to the doctor and I have this great vivid memory of being so sick that as they hauled me from the car into the clinic, I puked all over the ground and and they just dismissed it and in we go. And uh, they said, you know, son, your ear uh, aches so much because you busted your eardrum. It it ruptured. And I said, okay. And uh, so at that point, there was about three or four days left of camp. And they said, we're going to call your parents and see if they want to come get you. Uh, The twist in the story is this. My dad was at home. Uh, My mom was actually at a conference in Dallas for the week. And so my dad gets the phone call that I'm there. I have a ruptured eardrum and that I'm rather sick, but I'm getting better with the medicine. And they asked him apparently what he wanted to do. And he decided, well, it's only a few days until camp's over. Why don't you just stay there? I've forgiven him for this. Um... (laughs) But I don't know why he decided to do that. I guess he had his reasons. And what was worse, do you think he told my mom? No, he didn't tell my mom until I got back. I'm sure that caused a bit of, di- of a division in their marriage for some time. Um, but I can remember sitting in the bed for however many days, two or three or four days, sick as a dog and just wanting, just wanting to go home. Just wanting to be at home, knowing I wasn't supposed to be at the camp. I wanted to be home. Did you know that this feeling of, of being homesick is actually a, a biblical concept? The Bible speaks, not in so many words, of, of this feeling of a longing for our true home, of being homesick for heaven. And today, in part one of our new sermon series, I want us to take a look at what being homesick for heaven looks like. You know, throughout human history, it's interesting, when you look at the pages of history, you'll find out that people, both pagan and Christian, have had this sense that there is more to come. There is this innate sense of the afterlife, that after we die, there is an afterlife. After we die, it's not it. We continue on in some sense of the word. And so pagans of old have had a sense of this afterlife. I want to give, give you a few interesting illustrations. First of all, the Australian Aborigines thought that heaven, they saw heaven was a a distant island just beyond the horizon, kind of the farthest point that they could see. The Polynesian culture thought that when they died, they went to either the sun or the moon, and that's what they thought heaven was. 
Native Americans, some believed that their spirits, after they died, would go to this e- eternal spiritual hunting, hunting ground and that they would hunt buffaloes uh, for the rest of their afterlife. Interestingly enough, Egyptians, I really like this one, Egyptians placed maps... They placed maps with their mummies to guide the, the deceased into, into the afterlife. That was interesting. Romans, maybe you've seen this movie that's behind us. Romans thought that the righteous would be in a, an eternal picnic in the Elysian fields while their horses graze nearby. If you've seen the movie Gladiator, at the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie, this image of heaven is portrayed. So why is this? We can move on from the picture. Why, why is this? Why do even pagans, those who don't believe rightly, why do they have an, a sense of the afterlife? I think Ecclesiastes, Solomon tells us, he gives us an answer to this question. He says this, He, speaking of God, He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. God has set eternity in the hearts of men. That is, there is an, in, an innate sense of the eternal. The pagans were right. There is something after this life. I find it extremely humbling and challenging to look through not just world history, but through Christian history. And when you look through Christian history, what we find out is that our brothers and sisters of old, had, had, they portrayed this intense longing, this yearning, this homesickness for heaven in their writings. We can go all the way back to the first century. Of course, many of the Christians uh, died under persecution in the first uh, century. And in the, in the Christian Roman catechisms, there are numerous inscriptions. I just w- want to read a few of them to you. Uh, one says, uh, one who lives with God. That is, they know that they now live with God. Another says, he was taken up into his eternal home. So from the very beginning, Christians have understood that this is not all there is. The third century Christian, a Cyprian, said this. He said, anyone who has been in foreign lands longs to return to his own native land. And then he writes, we regard paradise as our native land. Moving ahead several centuries, the 16th century Puritan preacher, Jonathan Edwards, wrote this. He said, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey towards heaven. Isn't that an interesting perspective? It becomes us, it, it behooves us, right, to spend this life only as a journey towards heaven. 17th century British pastor, Charles Spurgeon, you may have heard of him, great pra- pastor and preacher. He said this, he said, to come to thee, speaking to God, to come to thee is to come home from exile, to come to land out of the raging storm, to come to rest after long labor, to come to the goal of my desires and the summit of my wishes. Wow, isn't that amazing? The 18th century poet G.K. Chesterton, he, he wrote this, the modern philosopher had told me again and again that I was in the right place, And I still felt depressed. When I heard that I was in the wrong place, my soul sang for joy like a bird in spring. I knew now why I could feel homesick at home. And that's the biblical concept of heaven, of being able to feel homesick at home here in this earth. And so as I 
studied this and as I read what these Christians of old wrote, I had to ask myself, and I want to ask you as well, are we as homesick for heaven as they are? I mean, do we feel this way? Do we feel like heaven is our real home and we should just spend all of our life thinking that it's a journey towards the next, towards the ultimate? Are we as homesick as them? I mean, can you, can you see yourself saying what Charles Spurgeon and G.K. Chesterton and Jonathan Edwards, can you see yourself articulating that longing and meaning it? I had to ask myself this, and I had to admit that I probably wasn't. I probably was not as homesick for heaven as, as they are. And then I had to ask a follow-up question, well, why is that? If I'm not as homesick for heaven as they are, what, are there any reasons for that? In his wonderful book entitled Heaven, Randy Alcorn gives us a few suggestions as to why we are not as homesick for heaven as some of our brothers and sisters who have gone before us. And then I've added a few points of my own. So let me just suggest to you really briefly four reasons. Four reasons may I suggest to you that maybe we, you and I, are not as homesick for heaven as they are and as the Bible indicates that we should be. Number one, unwillingness. That is, we have an unwillingness to talk about death. I don't know if you've noticed that in our culture, but death is not a subject that we talk about every day. It's not something we enjoy talking about for obvious reasons, but more than that, I think it's something that we shun. I think it's something that we push aside. We sweep it under the rug. We kind of cover our ears because we don't want to talk about it. And that is so polar opposite from David in Psalm 39.4. This is how David prays. He says, show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. And yet, don't we act and don't we pray just the opposite? Don't, is it, are we not like David? We seem to take the attitude of the French king, the great Louis XV, who decreed that the word death not be uttered in his presence or in his castle. And I think that's one reason why we are not homesick for heaven because we are unwilling to talk about death and to remove death from our thinking and from our conversations to some degree is to remove heaven from it as well. So there's, there's an unwillingness. But, but secondly, I think there's neglect. I think there's neglect from people like myself, from people who write theology books, from people who do DVDs for us to watch and enjoy, for people who write Christian books. I think there is a neglect of the doctrine of heaven. Again, in his book, Randy Alcorn cites, and I won't list them, but he cites numerous well-known theology books that guys like me read when we're in seminary, and we read them, and he cites how sparse, how, how minimal the conversation about heaven really is in those books. And he, he says there's a lack of preaching on heaven. We like to talk about hell because we want people, rightly so, to know that there is an eternal hell apart from Christ, and yet we fail to focus on the other side, which is the eternal heaven. And he likens this neglect, he likens it to being a part of a NASA team, to being a part of a NASA team that's, been, that's preparing to go to Mars. And they're preparing to go to Mars on a five-year mission. And then somebody asks one of the astronauts, hey, what can you tell me about Mars? I don't know much about Mars. You're going to go there and spend five years there. What do you know about Mars? And if we were to ask that person and they were to say, oh, not much. Oh, not much. 
We never really talk about it. And, you know, I guess we find out when we get there. That's the kind of neglect that I think we have of the doctrine of heaven. There's an unwillingness to talk about death. There's neglect. Third, may I suggest that distortion skews our vision, our our image of heaven. There's a distortion of a biblical portrait of heaven. And that's what I hope to do in the next six to seven weeks, is to give us a biblical portrait of heaven so that we would hunger for it, so that we would long for it, so that we would live in light of it. I want to show you a cartoon. It's uh, probably familiar. Gary Larson, his famous cartoon called The Far Side, I think is a great example of this. So there's the guy, and he's got the wings, right? And he's got the halo, and, and he's, of course, sitting on a cloud because that's what we think heaven is going to be for some reason. And then he, he's saying this to himself, oh, man, I wish I bought a magazine, right? I wish I just would have brought a magazine, right? Because we have this warped image that that's what heaven's going to be, sitting on a clouds forever, doing nothing. John Eldridge, in one of his books, The Journey of Desire, comments on, I think, an unbiblical portrait of heaven. He says, nearly every Christian, we can move from that, he says, nearly every Christian I have spoken to has had some idea that eternity is an unending church service. Great, I know, I was like, hey, that's great. Okay, (laughs) we have settled on an image of the never-ending sing-along in the sky, one great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen. And our heart sinks forever and ever, that's it, that's the good news, and then we sigh and we feel guilty that we are not more spiritual. I think he's hitting on something. In his book, Randy Alcorn says this, he says there's so much more to heaven, quote, what God made us to desire is exactly what he promised to those who follow Jesus Christ. A resurrected life in a resurrected body with the resurrected Christ on the resurrected earth. We're going to flesh that little saying out over the weeks to come. And hopefully a biblical concept of what heaven will be like will stir our hearts so that we would long for what it's going to be. Certainly, it will include singing. I read through the book of Revelation on vacation, and there is a lot of singing in heaven. But there is so, so much more to that. So three reasons, right? There's an unwillingness to talk about death. There's neglect. There's a distortion, I think, of a biblical concept of heaven. And number four, fear. That is fear of ineffectiveness. I think for some of us, we fear that if we think about heaven so much that we will be ineffective here on earth. Uh, Maybe you've heard the little saying that we can be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly value. Maybe you've, you've heard that little saying before. I don't want you to believe it because it's not true. The Bible says that it's not true. C.S. Lewis has a, a famous quote. He says this. He says, if you read history... Christian history in particular, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most in the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so effective in this one. He says, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. But if you aim at earth, you will get neither. And so I think these are some reasons why we don't have a homesickness for heaven, like our brothers and our sisters before us. But more importantly than what Christians thought before us, and more importantly than why I think, or Randy Alcorn thinks, that we are not as homesick for heaven as we should, the most important, the most pressing question is this, 
should we be? The most important and pressing question is, should we be homesick for heaven? Does the Bible say that we should be homesick for heaven? And so turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 11. We have this wonderful account of Abraham and Sarah and the patriarchs and how they were homesick for heaven. I want to start in verse 8 and we'll make our way through verse 16 to answer this question. Just a little background. Hebrews 11, if you're familiar with Hebrews at all. Hebrews 11 is known as the hall of what? The hall of faith, right? Because the idea of faith is repeated again and again and again. The author speaks of what faith is in verses 1 and 2, and then he basically spends the rest of the chapter fleshing out how believers of old lived out their faith in God in obedience to him, both for blessings and for hardships, how they were faithful to God. Starting then in verse 8, I want to narrow our focus. Starting in verse 8, the author then turns to the life of Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and then Jacob. And what the author does is he speaks to, it's kind of an aside. Chapter 11 is, is, a, is a record of all of these saints, some of whom we know in the Bible, some of whom we don't, and just how, what they did, how they practiced their obedience, how they lived out their faith. <clears throat> but uh, starting in verse 13, roughly, the author just takes an aside. He starts with Abraham, and he speaks of the faith of Abraham. He speaks of the faith of Sarah, and then he takes in a side in verse 13, and he's going to talk about the motivation. He's going to talk about the motivation of Abraham and his family, the patriarchs, how they lived in the promised land that God had given them without possessing it and without receiving the promise that God had given he and his descendants to make a numerous nation to live on this land. How did they live as aliens and foreigners in a land that was rightfully theirs because God gave it to them, yet not possessing it? How did they do that? What motivated them to obey God even when they died without seeing God's promises to them fulfilled? Well, let's start in verse 8 with the faith of Abraham, verses 8 through 12. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. Notice here, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10, this is a key verse. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is whom? God. Verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable, innumerable grains of the sand by the seashore. So in verses 8 through 12, we, the author speaks of the faith of Abraham, how he left without knowing where he was going. God said, go, and he went, and then he showed him where to go, and how he went, and he lived in the promised land without receiving the promise, without the, pr- the promise being fulfilled. He speaks of the faith of Sarah and how she believed that she could conceive even though she was past the age, and from her 
womb was born an entire nation. But focus your attention on verse 10. Let's go back to it if we can. Because verse 10 speaks to the motivation of Abraham. Verse 10 shows what Abraham was really looking for. That Abraham was able to live in the land that was rightfully his as a foreigner because the land in the city he was really looking for was a city not made by man in the promised land, but what? Made by God himself. What does it say in verse 10? For, this is an explanation. How could he live like that? For he was looking forward to the city that has a foundation whose designer and builder is God. Interesting. So he was in the promised land, and there were many cities there, but that's not the kind of city that he was really looking for. Let's keep reading. In verses 13 through 16, the author takes an aside. He just takes the story, the narrative, and he goes aside, and he says, this is the motivation. Verses 13 through 16. These, I believe, speaking of Abraham and his family, Isaac and Jacob, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. That is, when they died, they did not own the land and the, the, the nation was not there. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were what? Strangers. And what? Exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. Verse 16. But as it is, they desire a what? A better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So what is verses 13 through 16? What is it showing us? It shows us that they saw themselves as strangers and exiles, not just in the promised land. It wasn't theirs yet, technically, right? They weren't just strangers then, but what does it say? They were strangers. They considered themselves strangers and aliens on the earth. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Not just in the promised land at that point, but on the earth. They... They thought that they were foreigners, strangers, exiles on this present earth. And it reveals that they were homesick not to go back to the land of Ur, which is where they came out of, but to go to a a different home, their true home. The author tells us that because they were homesick for heaven, God was not ashamed to be called their God, and he prepared a city for them. So what was their motivation? They longed for for heaven. They longed for a city that God would build. They longed for a home that was not on this earth. It's interesting. As you read, continue to read through the book of Hebrews, what you find out, jump with me to chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, jump with me just one or two chapters over, one chapter over to chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 22 through 23. We see this idea pop up again. Chapter 12, verses 22 through 23. Later in this chapter, Hebrews, uh, the author of Hebrews describes heaven as this city. Remember, God prepared a city for them. Well, what does that city look like? What was it? The author tells us that that city that God prepared for Abraham and his family 
was heaven. It is heaven, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And we could go on and on. So God prepared a city for them. What was that city? It was heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, full of angels and the church and all of the faithful saints for all eternity. But it gets better because as you keep reading the book of Hebrews, in chapter 13, verse 14, we find out that we, like Abraham, are to seek that heavenly city which God has prepared for him and for us, which is to come. So Hebrews 13, verse 14. Flip there with me. Hebrews 13, 14 says this. It says, For here, excuse me, for here we do not have an enduring city. That is, here on this present earth, we do not have a city that lasts. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to what, church? That is to come. We are looking for the city that is to come. So the city that God prepared for Abraham, that's the city he's preparing for us too. And the author of Hebrews says that we should be looking for that city. Turn with me now to the book of Revelation. It's the very last chapter in your Bible. So flip to the end, Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21 verses, uh, we'll do one and two just for context. What we find out when we turn to the end of the Bible is that John the Apostle in this chapter, verses 21, chapter 21, one through two, reveals to us that this heavenly city that the author has been speaking of will one day come out of heaven to the earth will come out of heaven to the earth on a renewed and recreated earth. And that will be the city that we live in forever, along with the recreated earth. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Verse 2. And I saw the holy city. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 3, just for fun. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And so what do we see from Hebrews? Is it biblical to be homesick for heaven? Should we be homesick for heaven like the saints that have gone before us? And the answer from Hebrews and other places is emphatically yes. That's why Paul in Philippians could say, verse 1, verse 21, chapter 1, he, he can say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. What? <laughs> to live is Christ and if I die, it's better? Only somebody who's homesick for heaven can say that and mean it. He can say things like, I would prefer <clears throat> to be away from the body, speaking of death, and to be at home with the Lord. That's his preference, to die and to be with the Lord. 
right? That's my preference. He could say, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Better by far? Do we, do I think that? Do we think that? Better by far? Only someone who is homesick for heaven can say these things and mean them. So does the Bible say we should be homesick for heaven? Emphatically, yes. There was a pastor once who was doing some street witnessing. He was out on the streets in the city that he lived in, and he was doing some street evangelism. And there he encountered three young boys, three young teenagers, and he approached them to to speak to them, and he asked them this question, do you want to go to heaven? And one of the boys, the leader of the group, said, not me. And uh, the pastor had not gotten that before. He was shocked by the young man's response. He said, you mean you don't want to go to heaven when you die? To which the young boy replied, oh, when I die? Oh, when I die? Yeah, sure, I do want to. I thought you were going to get a group to go right now. (laughs) So how about you? How about me? Do you want to go to heaven? And not just when you die, but right now, if the Lord calls you, are you, am I, homesick for heaven? My prayer by the end of our series is that we may all be able to say, and mean it with Paul, that I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. Let's pray.